Hi coaches, welcome to season four of the ITA Coaches Podcast. I am your new host, Danielle McNamara, Director of Coach Education at the ITA, and I'm excited to sit down for our first episode. As we approached the 21st annual HBCU National Tennis Championships, I sat down with Alan Green, the Director of Tennis and Head Men's and Women's Tennis Coach at Xavier University of Louisiana, who led both his men's and women's team to the 2021 HBCU National title. Green is entering his 20th season leading the Xavier programs and is an alumnus of the university himself. A New Orleans native, Green is a three-time ITA NAIA National Coach of the Year. In this podcast, Alan and I discuss the history and importance of the HBCU National Tennis Championship, as well as some of the unique and special characteristics of playing and coaching at an HBCU. Green shares with us his path to Xavier and some of his own ideas on how to enhance and elevate college tennis more broadly. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, You have spent your entire professional career at Xavier University of Louisiana and actually were a student athlete there as well. And so I guess I'd like to first start off backing up a little bit and asking you, how did you get started in the sport of tennis? And then specifically, how did you um, become interested in being a college tennis coach? Well, the beginning for me, uh, it's it's interesting. It's kind of interesting story. Um, It kind of happened by accident. So we have a um, longtime local pro here, local professional by the name of Nehemiah Atkinson. He, um, he passed away a while back, but and he also has a tennis facility named after him here in New Orleans. And um, here's, here's the happenstance here. It just so happened, my uncle dated his daughter. And so one summer, he came, he came to our house and he said, um, hey, I'm going to get you and, and my cousin, his son, I'm going to get you guys out of here and uh, take you to tennis camp. And so we were like, what tennis, tennis camp? Like, no way, please don't, don't make us go there, please. And so we, um, he said, no, you're going to go to the tennis camp. You got you to gotta go try it out. So we were like kicking and screaming not to go. We wanted to go to like a football, a basketball, or a baseball camp. So we ended up going, and once we got there, uh, Nehemiah gave us a racket, and and there were like hundreds of kids out there running around, hitting balls, and just having fun. So we kind of jumped out there with him, and I I just kind of took to the game pretty pretty quick, and it was it was a natural thing for me, and I and I couldn't believe that you know how fun it was, and so. You know, after two weeks, we didn't have to go back because my uncle was our ride to get there. And he was going, he was on a two-week vacation from work. So after two weeks, we really didn't have to go back. But we ended up sticking to it, especially me. You know, I, I was catching the, the the public bus to get there. And I was 10 years old at the time. And, and it was like a 45-minute one-way trip to get to the facility. And, uh, and I, I did it every day. For the rest of the summer and um the rest is history now yeah. as as far as uh hbcu getting yeah. getting into at xavier that's that's another story in itself so i i didn't start out at xavier right out of high school i went to uh i went to a pwi in in alabama and um 
at the time, I think I wasn't, I would say academically ready coming out of high school. I mean, I graduated at 17 years old and I think the maturity wasn't there for me at the time. So I kind of went into it and, and it's funny, I had an opportunity to go to an HBCU mm-hmm. at this time and I didn't want to go. And knowing what I know now, like, you know what, I probably should have gone, but at the time I didn't want to go to an HBCU, which is, which is crazy that I'm thinking about this right now. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I found out, and I think, you know, I, I believe in God and, and God has a path for everyone. And there's a reason for everything and that he took me through this path. So I had to go experience going to this school and it wasn't a good experience for me. And um, I lasted two years at this school and never played, but I was there for two years and um, pretty, pretty much ended up flunking out of the school after two years. And I came back home and, you know, home for me is New Orleans. So mm-hmm. I would, uh, I started working and I was at this point, I'm 19 years old, out of school, working, making some money and living on my own. I was, I was totally independent living on my own. And, but I didn't play tennis. I didn't train until the summertime. Summertime, a couple of friends of mine who who were at HBCUs would come in and, you know, they want to keep their summer training going. So I would jump in and train with them and I would be beating these guys. But here I am, I'm just a guy on the street and um, just living life and working and not in school. And I'm, you know, beating these guys as playing at division one HBCUs. So I did that for about four years and I said, you know what, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I got to get my butt back in school. Mm-hmm. And I always knew the coach at Xavier since I was a little kid. And every time we used to, we used to play on the courts at Xavier. And every time the coach would say every summer, Hey, Alan, when are you going to get your butt back in school? I said, ah, coach, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. I got, I got some bills to pay. I didn't have big bills, but that's what I told her. Because I was having fun, enjoying, you know, being, living on my own. And so, uh, but I told her, I said, you know what? I said, when I'm ready to go back to school, I promise I'm going to come to Xavier. And so after four years, I kind of kept my promise, but I didn't come to Xavier right away because I was four years removed from school. And I knew the last time I was in the classroom, I flunked out. So what I did was I went to, there's another, actually it's an HBCU. It's a Southern University of New Orleans. It's a commuter school. Mm-hmm. They used to have tennis. They don't have tennis now, but they used to have it. They have other sports. So I went there just to be able to get myself back in the classroom, get used to waking up in the morning, mm-hmm. get into a regular routine because I think I lived four years four years straight of uh, probably not going to bed before 3 a.m. or something like that and not, and not getting out of the bed before noon. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was one of those things. And um, so I went to the school, I went to Southern New Orleans and um, got a, took a couple of classes, took two classes, got an A and a B. So next semester, the spring semester, okay, I got to add another class here just to keep this thing going. And I got another couple of A's and a B. So then I said, okay, now it's time for me to, I think I'm ready for Xavier now. So went to the coach and said, coach, I'm ready. 
So now we were in year five of me being removed from the previous school. Wow. So she, uh, she took me in with open arms and, and I came in and had a great three and a half years of uh, studying at Xavier. I mean, actually, when I got to campus, I, I showed up the 98, 99 year and never left. Wow. That's right. Because you're entering this year is your 20th year as the head coach of that program, men's and women's, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The timing, I graduated in 02 and um, I went from, because the coach left right at the, before I graduated and I graduated in, in the summer of 02. So I finished my last class in like first around around first of July or something like that. And I was the coach like the next week. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So what made you change your mind? Because you said in the beginning you felt strongly about not attending an HBCU and then fast forward all those years and you're at Xavier. Like what made you change and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, here's the thing. Me, like a lot of young people today we think we're better than an HBCU and at the time I thought I was better than HBCU because I had these these friends of mine who were there and I was beating these guys I was like you know what I'm gonna challenge myself and I'm and for some crazy reason I'm thinking that these other schools these bigger schools are are bigger and better than HBCUs and turns out it wasn't so that was that was the thing for me that you know I realized now what I didn't know back then was, you know, it's all about opportunity. And at the other school, I didn't get the opportunity. Whereas at the HBCU, I had all the opportunity in the world. Mm -hmm. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so did you know when you were nearing like graduation time at Xavier that you wanted to be a college coach or how did you figure all that yes. out? You did. Yes. So basically the coach that brought me in she was there with me when I, when I got to Xavier, I was basically a sophomore. Okay. okay so I had three years eligibility. So I, I was with her, my sophomore, my junior year, she left after my junior year and we got a new coach. And so my senior year, I played for a guy, a different coach, an older guy. And he was like a strict disciplinarian type coach. And that was the year where I realized, you know what, I want to be a coach. And it wasn't until my senior year at Xavier, until I, till it went off in my head that, hey, I want, I want to be a coach. So I approached the coach and said, hey, can I be your assistant coach next year? And I just want to learn everything there is to know about tennis, because this is what I want to do. You know, I finally had a purpose in what I wanted to do in my life. And he was like, yeah, that's like, I would love to have you as my assistant coach. And then at the end of the year, he left. He was he was let go. Or his contract wasn't renewed. And uh, I'm like, oh my gosh. So I was kind of devastated because I'm like, well, where's that going to leave me now? Like, I wanted to be your assistant coach. Mm -hmm. And he said, put in for the head coach position. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. I said, you think you think it'll, you know, you think I would have a shot? And he's like, why not? So the thing that I had going for me at the time was I was older. Mm -hmm. So I was, when I got to Xavier, I was 26 years old. And so when I graduated, now I'm 29, almost 30. And so the administration was comfortable with me 
leading the team that I just finished playing on because I was basically 10 years older than my teammates. Okay. So that kind of helped. Right. Right. That makes sense. So you've been doing this, like we said, for 20 years. Can you talk about any, are there unique features of coaching at an HBCU that you've noticed? Um, well, at Xavier, it's like, it's like a family environment in the athletic department. You know, we've had administrators and athletic directors that's, that's been in the department. I've been there 20 years and I've worked for pretty much two ADs. There's been another at the very beginning, but that was just like temporary. It was like a, um, an interim AD situation, but I've, you know, we, we have stability in the department and, and, um, you know, we, all the coaches, the head coaches are, are pretty close with each other. And so what's unique about that situation is we're, you know, we're all into each other's sports. We're all in, into each other's families. You know, we go to events together. We, I go to their family functions. They come to my family functions and things like that. So it's like, you know, I've never worked anywhere else, but you know, you kind of read about a lot of bigger schools and, and I've also talked to people that are at bigger schools and, you know, they tell me that, you know, they have coaches that they've worked with for years and they don't even know their names, you know, haven't had a lunch with them or something like that. Whereas we're like a, a close knit group and, and um, you know, we have a lot of fun every day at work. It doesn't feel like work. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just great to be around the campus and it's great to be around the other coaches and the atmosphere. And it's just like, I mean, it, it, I, honestly, it does not feel like work. And, you know, you say I've been here 20 years and I'm like, wow, you know, I got to think <laughs> about that sometimes myself. I'm like, wow. Cause it doesn't, it just goes so fast. And like they mm -hmm. say, you know, time flies when you're having fun. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So in a couple of days, the HBCU National Tennis Championship will begin uh, September 15th to 18th in Atlanta, Georgia. And this is the 21st year of this national championship. Um, you won the men's and women's championship last year. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that tournament, um, about what the experience is like playing in it and as a player and as a coach? I would say it's a it's a great tournament. It, it really is. And it's a great tournament to where you get to see all of the different teams that are all HBCUs. And so even though, like I said, Xavier is kind of like a family atmosphere, well, when it comes to the sport of tennis, you know, HBCUs, a lot of a lot of the HBCUs are they're kind of, you know, family oriented as well to where you know the guys the coaches it's really the coaches that really put the effort in to get their teams to the HBCU tournament because they don't have to play it but they'll make the effort and they'll get you know their administrations to make the effort to put the money up to play because a lot of programs unfortunately don't have the budget or it kills a big portion of their budget and it's really not worth it's not worth playing for some of these teams you know, I can remember um, Prairie View when John Cochran was the coach. And um, John Cochran, you know, he used to tell me all the time, like, ah, this, this is going to it's going to kill my budget. But he was he was hell bent on bringing his team from Houston, 
from the other side of Houston to Atlanta, which was a big, long trip for him. He would show up on that big bus and make sure that his teams were there because he knew how important it was for his team to experience the HBCU tournament. Mm -hmm. And there's no other tournament that we would all play during the season that's like the HBCU tournament. So it's a, it's a, it's almost like a, a, a rite of passage, something that you have to do. Um, and, I, and I, I strongly believe that every HBC, HBCU should participate in it because a lot of the players know each other and it's a good chance for them to see each other, you know, no matter where they're from, there's always a lot of hugs and, and, and you know, long greetings and, and, and good talks. And, you know, there's never, there's almost, I can't recall when there's a fight at this tournament. And, you know, you go into the regular season playing some of these other teams that you play and, you know, there's all kinds of altercations, but, mm -hmm. you know, for as many teams that are there and as many players that are there, you know, it's always, it's, it's a great environment to be in and it's a great tournament for all the kids to participate in and enjoy. And the coaches, you know, really get something out of it too, because it's a lot of, uh, reunion so to speak where we get to see each other that one time a year if we don't see them in the regular season right yeah it sounds like it's just as much about the opportunity to compete in the tournament as much as it is the off-court experience that you have there over the course <laughs> of that tournament so that's pretty amazing so in 2020 i read that there were 101 hbcus located in the united states and in that same year, there were only about 15 or 20 HBCUs that participated in the national tennis championship that we were just talking about. So you kind of alluded to one of the reasons already, which is just financial budget reasons. But can you think of any ways that we can increase the number of HBCUs in the country that have that sponsor varsity tennis programs? Because some of it is that too, that there just aren't teams on those campuses. Yeah, I think... Um... Well, you know, I'll, I'll repeat it again. It, it, it's, it starts with the budget. It starts with the budget. And, you know, really, it's like the example that I use with Coach Cochran. Um, you know, he passed away some years ago. But he was, he was a great example of what, you know, um, HBCU coaches and teams should be all about. And because that guy, he made the effort. And, and I'm just trying to follow and I learn, I learn from almost everybody that I come across and I try to, you know, have a lot of good influences and take the good from everybody that I see and, um, and use it. And I think that you have to, it's, it's, it's really up to the coach, so to speak, you know, they, yes, they have to get approvals. Yes. They have to have the money to do it, but it's really the coach that's going to push to do it. And, the, and these coaches have to, you know, push and make the effort and put the pressure on their administrations to, to have this participation. And, you know, yeah, I know you don't have the, you may not have the budget, but I mean, even if you don't have the budget, I think that something like the ITA coaches convention, you know, these coaches should participate in that, you know, mm -hmm. They should, that should become the, the, the thing to do every year, just like attending the HBCU tournament. If you go to the convention, I mean, I guarantee you won't come out of it. You, you won't come out of it saying, ah, I shouldn't have gone there, you know, no matter how much money it costs to go. And, um, you know, if, um, 
USTA or ITA or whoever can, um, you know, give some little incentives to go, some grants or something like that. And they've been doing that, which is great because we've had a lot more minority coaches and HBCU coaches attending the ITA event, the coaches convention. And um, it's, it's been a great success. So I think that getting coaches, for one, getting more and more coaches to participate in the HBCU tournament, and then you're getting those same coaches to participate in the coaches convention, I think will help increase the numbers because you gotta, when you get there, you're like, wow, how, how come I haven't been doing this all this time, you know, since I've been coaching, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's a great event, both of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know there will be a big push this year with our convention moving to May of 2023 at the um, national championships, the joint division one, two, and three NCAA championships at Lake Nona. So that's, mm. that's going to be a really, really exciting um, convention coming up. So you kind of mentioned already how, how we could, um, you know, keep our current minority college tennis coaches in the profession. I wonder if you have any ideas on how we could increase the overall number of minority college tennis coaches. Like, how do we get those current student athletes maybe at these HBCU institutions playing tennis to, like yourself, to be thinking about college coaching as a potential career? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think... um... For one, they should, right after graduation, do one of two things. They can try to go the route that I, I was attempting to go as far as approaching their coach and, and trying to volunteer and be an assistant coach. Or the other route is being a grad assistant. So being a grad assistant at their school or another school just to get involved and, and kind of build the resume up to, um, you know, to get the experience and, and learn the game and learn, um, you know, everything there is and just take a genuine interest in, you know, coaching, coaching men and women. Um, I think here's, here's another thing that I think is, is, is good. So you have coaches that are at HBCUs, all right? For instance, I'll take an example. Um, Gabby Moore, who was at um, Jackson State last few years. So Gabby just took a position at a PWI D1. Mm-hmm. And so, and she's looking to advance and try to get to the highest level possible. And that's the route that she's going. And that's great. And that, so we have, now we have another minority coach that's, in D1 at a PWI. And now her position opens up an opportunity for someone to come in at an HBCU. Mm-hmm. So when you have situations like that, it just opens so many doors and creates so many opportunities for other coaches to kind of step up in the program and 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 take over and you know get get that opportunity like the one that I got. Right. No, that's that's great advice. And Are there any ideas that you have, um, you mentioned the grants that the ITA and USTA are offering, um, you know, for some of these HBCU coaches to attend the convention. Are are there other 
things you think that the ITA and or USTA can be doing to better support coaches and student athletes at HBCUs? So this tournament, this HBCU tournament, I mean, Dr. Goodman is the, the founder of the HBCU tournament, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And if I recall correctly, when I played in the tournament, because you mentioned, you know, I played it in my, mm-hmm. myself. I remember this tournament being in the spring and it was a team event. And, and then it became maybe a, a couple of years later, an individual tournament in the fall. And it was kind of tied into Florida A&M's big football game against Tennessee state, which was always in the Georgia dome in Atlanta. And so they made a big weekend of festivities out of it and, and put the HBCU tennis tournament the same weekend in Atlanta. And there was also a golf HBCU golf tournament in Atlanta the same weekend. So they had all these different events for HBCUs it's kind of tied up around the Tennessee State versus Florida A&M football game, which is like a big football game. Mm-hmm. But I remember this thing being in the spring and it was a team event. And I think I would like to see that come back. And I think that would help. And, and because, you know, to me, once a year, that's great, but mm-hmm. it could be more. And I think that would also have more exposure to it. And that would get, that would help out all of the programs because here's the thing. You think about the teams that don't come in the fall mm-hmm. because of budget reasons. And they say, well, I don't want to burn that much of a chunk of my budget in the fall for an individual tournament. Well, if it's a team event, that's what they're saving the money for. Right. So they can use that money and have, you know, a better justification, whether it's in their mind or if it's in in the administration's mind to play the event. And I think you would get some great participation out of that too. I mean, we would do it. Yeah. Yep. So a team event in the spring, in addition to the fall individual national championship is what you would suggest. Correct. And I think, you know, that's, you know, we're playing in the fall and we're playing as individuals and they're getting a point for every match that they win. And the point totals add up, and that's going to determine the champion. So you could win based off of quantity, of having the most entries and the most opportunities to win, or you could have quality where you only have a few players, but they're winning all their brackets, and they're racking up points. So, you know, but there's there's a lot of times where we're in that tournament, and I'm like, and especially when you get down to semifinals and finals where you have the whole team rooting for that one person on the court. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's been a lot of times where like, man, I wish we could play that team, just that team, the whole team. Right. And, and I'm sure other teams were the same way. And then but when you get to the spring, you know, we're in AIA school. So with the ranking system that Division One has, they – Basically, they can play in any IA school, and if they're trying to get certain rankings or, or get certain, I guess, criterias to meet NCAA tournament um, at-large bid status or whatever, playing in NAIA doesn't count, so it doesn't really benefit them. Mm-hmm. So really, they, they, you know, they don't have to play in any IA school, and, and a lot of times they don't, and they, and they for sure wouldn't travel to go play in any IA school. Now, if they're traveling to we're in a good situation where we have a lot of teams come down here to play Tulane or, 
University of New Orleans. And so we'll pick up matches that way because the team just want to play an extra match or two while they're here. Mm -hmm. But other than that, they have no incentive to play in any high school. But, you know, I think in a situation like that, having this HBCU tournament as a team event in the spring, I think would be great. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing event. And if you could just figure out a few logistics, maybe maybe that would be a huge draw to some of those teams that just can't justify going in the fall for the individual event. Um, okay, so if the tennis gods came down and, and said, you are the CEO of college tennis for a day, and I'm not just specifically for HBCUs, but all of college tennis for a day, what would be your suggestions or what would be some of the first things that you would want to address in college tennis? Ooh. That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> well, I mean, we're at a, we're at a small school. So I tell you what we, for us, tennis officials are huge and and I've, I've been to a lot of big D1 matches and there's an official on every single court. There's chairs, chair umpires on every single court. And, you know, that's something I would like to see mandatory for every match. You know, no matter what it costs, it's mandatory that there's going to be a chair umpire for every match. And matches are live streamed. Mm. All the matches are live streamed, mandatory you know, regardless of, of the budgets or whatever, we're going to make sure that there's a camera on every court, on every college tennis court in America. And um, I mean, yeah, right off the top of my head, I think, I think those would be two good ones, you know, just to be able to, um, I know that the, the, the players, they love to be on TV. You know, they watch tennis on TV all the time and they try to emulate the players, the pros that they see on TV. And, you know, they can, get that experience, so to speak, of not playing the pro tournaments, but being on TV. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even if it's a computer, even if it's, you know, a live stream match or where their families, because you have a lot of players from overseas, the families don't get a chance to see them. And, and for them, it's a, it's a big deal, you know, and, and they could be eight hours away, seven hours away. And, and, you know, it may be, 4 a.m. where their families are, but their families can, can get up and tune in. And, and it's, it's just a priceless thing for those families to be able to see their, their kids play tennis, mm -hmm. you know, from, from overseas. And, and even in the States, you know, the families here can have more access to the players, you know, because they can't travel all the time to all of the matches. Cause there's so many matches that we play and, and do a lot of traveling. So I think, you know, having that more, accessible to the to the families to be able to see their their players play and the the part with the officials you know I think it'll kind of cut down on conflicts on the court um you know with scoring and all that stuff and um because you know tennis tennis matches can get crazy sometimes yeah no absolutely and you have brought up a very hot topic with the streaming uh that you mentioned and I'm wondering, so we have this for, for any ITA um, member program, there's now um, Eye on Court, which is at least uh, an option for live scoring that, that programs can use. So at least people could follow along with the score, which is a, which is a huge addition we, we um, offered last year. 
but in terms of streaming, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a coach right now listening to this going, yeah, that would be great. We'd love to, but it's not cost effective or we can't afford to do that. Do you have any kind of creative ways that you have found it might not be the highest production quality, but at least like you said, it's, it's a stream that parents or alumni fans can watch the matches. Have you found anything that's worked for you guys? No, not yet. I mean, we're we're in the process of, of of looking into getting, you know, play site, just getting something started to be able to do it because right now something is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, the ideas, you know, I'm not sure because yeah, it can get it can get pretty expensive. And then you're adding on costs and you know, we're basically non revenue sport. So it, it can be tricky, but I mean there's gotta be some kind of way. I mean I mean, look at where we are now compared to where we were 20 years ago. And, you know, now you have the ability to live stream matches and, and see, you know, matches online. And I think in the near future, as time goes on, there's going to be cheaper ways to do this. And, and you know, look at, look at flat screen TVs. 20 years ago, those things were like four grand five grand and now you can get them for three, 400 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's going to be something like that where someone out there is going to figure out a way to do this and have access to this and it's not going to break the budget. Right. I hope you're right. And I hope it's sooner than later. <laughs> that would be great. Um, well, Alan, any final thoughts, any words of advice to our younger, newer coaches coming up in the profession? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, if this is, you know, what you want to do, you have a passion for it. Um, I think it's a, it's a great career to get into. It's a lot of fun. You know, I'm still doing this and, you know, for most coaches, it's not about, it's not about the money and it probably should never be, but, you know, and we have, I got tons of players that make a lot more money than me that, that played for me, graduated, but, you know, we kind of live our success is based off of their success and we kind of live through them and um, it's, it's very gratifying and you can't put a price on, on the gratification that you get for helping someone grow and succeed in life. Um, but it's, it's, it's great, you know, to, to be in this profession and um, you know, I enjoy it. It's, it's just a lot of fun. So I think if you're thinking about being a tennis coach, do it. Yeah. Well said. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and thanks for all your service to college tennis. I mean, a 20 year career, an impressive one at that. Um, keep up the great work and good luck at the tournament this weekend. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. <laughs>